I have always been a person who has enjoyed trips, taking trips, dreaming about the trips before we actually go on the trip. And I imagine that there's probably many of you that you have that similar type of personality, or even if you're not as excessive as I am in dreaming about vacations like I've done in the past, we all seem to have expectations when we go on trips, right? And so maybe months before the trip, you're, you're imagining the scenarios, you know, everybody that's there around you have smiles on their faces and there's sunlight that you haven't seen for six months, you know, and then, the, then it, there, there might be an occasional cloud just to kind of cool you down for a moment, you know, but it's not too hot, not too cold, perfect weather. And then the trip happens. And you get on that trip and somebody gets mad at somebody else and there's issues between the two of them and it rains for a whole day. You have a headache for a couple of days in a row and now all of a sudden you're mad. And you're not mad even just necessarily because those things happened. You're mad because your plans didn't come about. You had plans and it's all been thwarted. So then you spend another day sulking that you are not the master of your fate, clearly. And your vacation is now ruined. The stress of all the year didn't go away. Now, let me ask you a question. When your plans don't come about, has the cosmos been negatively affected by that? No. Is every human being in this world going, oh no, their vacation was ruined. Their plans have now negatively affected me. Is every human being thinking that? No, not at all. Why? Because you are not the ultimate, right? It negatively affected you, right? But it doesn't negatively affect, negatively affect everybody else. Now, let me ask you another question. If God's plans change, would that affect the cosmos? Yeah. What if God made a promise and then a thousand years later said, you know what, never mind. Would that, would that affect everything? Yeah, everything. Or what if God made a promise and then he had to rescind it because we messed it up? You know, because we, we tend to mess things up, right, as human beings, as seen in our imaginary vacation. And so then God says, well, I don't know, you did this, this, and this, and it ruined my plan, so I can't do it anymore because of you guys. If, if God's plans changed based on us, would that affect everything? Yes. And why would that affect everything and everyone? Because God is ultimate, because God is the creator. God is that important. And this in some ways is what Paul is coming, coming to us with in Romans chapter 9. And he's expressing to us in Romans chapter 9 the complete freedom of God to do whatever he wants to do. And that whenever God makes decisions... He acts on those decisions just like how he said he would do. And if God does not have complete freedom to do this, then humanity and the cosmos is doomed. If God 
like I worded it last week, if we don't have the God of Romans 9, then we don't have any assurance in any of the promises God made in the book of Romans or in the entire Bible. So you might be able to say you, you can grasp that, you can trust that to be true, but why am I bringing this up now? And it's because of how Paul has been wording things in Romans 8 coming into Romans 9. Coming into Romans 8, people could be wondering about the trustworthiness of God and his promises. I mean, many of the promises that God has made through Paul in Romans 8 were actually promises that were given to the Israelite nation in the Old Testament. So the Jewish people reading Paul's letter could be saying, okay, hold on a second, Paul. Wait, whoa, what about us? God made promises to us as Israelites. And so if, if God doesn't fulfill his promises to us, what good are the promises to the Gentiles? And the Gentiles reading the letter could say, yeah, what they said. That seems pretty important that God would keep his promises. And so Paul goes back to the Old Testament to say, okay, what did God actually say? What did God actually promise? And so he goes back to Abraham. And then he sees and shows that God did not promise that every physical descendant of Abraham would, would be rescued by God. So you have Ishmael and Isaac. You could say, well, that's just a fluke. Well, then let's go to Jacob and Esau. And Esau, we're told, God hated Esau and loved Jacob. And then at that point, we go, ooh, I don't really like that. I don't even like that phraseology. And so then, then Paul kind of takes a rabbit trail a little bit to, if we want to say it this way, just to explain how God is actually glorified in showing his justice and then showing his mercy. That God is completely right in doing this and he can do whatever he pleases with regards to judgment and exercising mercy. So he talks about Moses and Pharaoh and how he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, we actually come to rejoice more in the mercy of God. It's an amazing mystery to be able to rejoice in God in the face of judgment. But at that point, people can still sound the alarm and say, but that just doesn't sound fair. That's essentially what the people are saying in Romans chapter 9. That's not fair. It's so intriguing to me how throughout the book of Romans coming up to chapter 9, so much of the application is how God has condescended to us with patience and mercy and love and sacrifice and he gives 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 to us and how in all that giving it displays his glory. And then we come into Romans chapter 9 and Paul says, can we just talk solely about God here and how God can act and behave on the basis of himself. And we get to Romans chapter 9 and we say, what about my rights? And Paul is saying, God has given you all this. And now you're mad because God's in control of everything? What about your rights? And Paul, I think, is essentially saying in Romans chapter 9, what about God's rights? What about God's right to do whatever he designs to do? And so Paul is emphasizing, and he uses this word mercy. By the way, 
mercy is only mercy if it is not deserved. Therefore, no human beings can call God unfair for judging or unfair for giving what people don't deserve. They can't. You would say unfair only if you believe that human beings can lay hold of something from God. But I think at this point, even in Romans chapter 9, people will say, well, hold on a second, but, it, but people need to have a choice in this. That's an interesting one to me. Earlier in Romans, Paul says that all human beings are bound to their sin unless God sets them free. Romans 8 Verse 7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, read these two words with me, it cannot. Paul doesn't simply say that unbelievers don't submit to God. He says the nature of being a sinner means you can't submit to God. That's what sinfulness is, by the way. Sinfulness, sin is falling short of the glory of God. Being sinful means that you don't want God. You don't, you don't want him. You're, and in some ways you could say you're self-bound, but you, you are lost in your sins unless God rescues you. Or you will only defy God unless God reaches into your life to save you. Okay? Therefore, when people say, what about people's rights? What about my choice? My response to that is if people want to fight for their right to choose, they're fighting for their place in hell. You will only refuse God. That's why we need God to show mercy. Without his mercy, I'm lost. So we ought to trust and rest in God's absolute power to make plans and to keep his plans. If God doesn't keep his plans, everything falls apart. So in Romans 9, Paul confronts our belief and says that God being absolutely free is the only way that human beings can receive mercy. In his freedom, he punishes sinners because of their sinfulness, which all human beings deserve. And then he shows mercy, which no one deserves. Recognizing this power of God to judge and this power of God to grant mercy, then our response ought to be one of immense humility and appreciation of God. God's plans are never thwarted. And God had designed to save and rescue me and God is designed to show mercy to this world. God doesn't submit to me and my plans. I get to submit to his Now, again, the reason Paul is highlighting this, these truths is because of the question people are wondering in Romans, does God keep his promises to his people? And if he keeps his promises to the Jews, then the Gentiles can be encouraged. 
So Paul is seeking to encourage the believers that God is trustworthy. And God is trustworthy because he's free. He does whatever he pleases. And so Paul, what he's done here is he's gone to Abraham for proof of what is God's promise. Then he's gone to Isaac, Jacob, and then gone to Moses and the Exodus. Like I said, he rabbit trailed a little bit. And then now he's going back to the Old Testament and he's talking from the prophets. And what he's doing is he's showing that God has been consistent all along. God always remained the same. So if you haven't turned in your Bibles yet, go to Romans 9. We're going to start reading in verse 24 in a moment. And before we read, I'm going to pray. Abba, we cry out to you as children needing your spirit to guide our minds and our eyes and our ears. I need your spirit to influence my words so that I say things that are true and right and best. We need you to cause our hearts to embrace what you say as true and to live in light of it. We pray that you would cause our hearts to worship you more because of your absolute sovereignty, your glory. Let us glory in your glory. Father, I pray for people here in this room who haven't trusted in Christ that they would know the mercy that comes from the infinite God. And not only here, Lord, but we pray that throughout the uttermost parts of the world that people would praise you and glorify you, that your church would rise up and the gospel would be proclaimed and it would be faithfully proclaimed by your servants. That all around the globe, people would come to faith, that there would be much rejoicing in heaven today because of salvation's Think of the Martins and how they're newly arrived in South Africa, praying that they would be able to run in ministry. Whatever attacks that come their way, that your grace would sustain them and that they would continue to faithfully point to Jesus. And for even here in the Holland area, we pray for the churches that, that your gospel would be proclaimed not out of strife, but that truly, genuinely. And I think of Matt Niver at Faith United, reformed, and pray that you would embolden him in the message he preaches. We pray not unto us, not unto us, but to your name be all the glory. And may we find that to be our greatest delight. In Jesus' name, amen. So starting in verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jew only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. 
For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The title of the sermon this morning is Called as Vessels of Mercy. And the reason for this title is because of the word call that is found multiple times in this text. And Paul is now talking about those people who have been granted salvation by God, the vessels of mercy. Now, as Paul is earlier addressed, he's talking about the reality of God keeping his promises. And we, we know it's the case because of the Old Testament quotations. But again, now he's going to the prophets. What has God's intention been for Jews? And what has God's intention been for Gentiles? As I look at this text, I think the, the main idea, the big idea is that God planned to call many undeserving Gentiles and a remnant of undeserving Jews. Now, essentially, this thesis is given in verse 24, which, by the way, verse 24, as we look at it in the English language, it comes as the end of a sentence. In the Greek, it seems to function in two ways, an end of a sentence and also the beginning of a paragraph. So we don't do that in English. They can do amazing things in Greek. Um, so it's the beginning of a new paragraph. And so what Paul's doing here in this text is he's actually, this is functioning, verses 24 and following are functioning as a springboard to the end of chapter 9 through 10 and into 11. Okay, so this is a really important for us to understand what he's saying here. Now, as I've said already before, mercy is only mercy if it's undeserved. So I'm just highlighting, and for whatever reason, my slides aren't working again. So if I could get a clicker. But the reason why I have undeserving up there is just to make sure we have that in our minds. No human being deserves mercy, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Okay? Thank you. But I also have in this statement, God planned to call many undeserving. Call. I'm bringing that word call up here just as well as in the sermon or in the, the sermon title because it's showing up multiple times. Let's see if we can. Good? Good. Because, it, because the word call shows up four times in three verses. Now, you might say, well, that doesn't sound like many times, except when you actually look at Paul's quotation of Hosea. In the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. And in that Greek translation, it says, God says this and God says this. Paul actually uses a different word and inserts the word call. So it's not a direct quotation when he's doing that. Now, you can say he's changing up the meaning. He's not changing up the meaning. What he's doing, though, is he's actually emphasizing what does it mean here in this text when it says God says. And so what Paul does, is he uses a Greek word for call, which can, which can actually be translated and understood as effective call or he effectively calls. So let me give two illustrations to help us understand that. Have you ever dealt with a disobedient child? Any of you, whether nursery, parenting, whatever. I mean, some parents are like, no, my kids are perfect. <laughs> <sighs> 
But if you're, dealing, if you're dealing with a disobedient child, it almost does not matter what you say to them. They're, they're off, okay? Come here, they run further. Stop running, they hide. Um, whatever you tell them, they go against you. Now, you're saying a lot of things, and they have just refused to listen, right? Now, some people say that's what it means. God tells people, he says to people, but you know what? We just don't respond. That's not what the word say or call means here in this text. So let's think of another illustration. I've used this, I think, even recently in a sermon, but I found it helpful. Hopefully it is for you. Uh, our family has a dog named Marlon. And Marlon, he, from, from the beginning when we got him, we got him around seven or eight years old. And when we got him, he immediately knew that I was the alpha. And he is absolutely right. And he has treated me as such ever since. So sometimes my children, they'll let Marlon outside and uh, Marlon goes out there, he runs around and then he just stands there for a while. And he's doing nothing, just staring at the door. And my kids are like, Marlon, come. Marlon, Marlon, Marlon. And then, dad, can you call Marlon? And then I... And comes into the door. Good boy. Good boy. (laughs) I have an effective whistle. Okay? And it's effective because of who I am. But actually, this idea of call goes even further than that. God has an effective call that when he calls, people will come. But this word for call goes deeper than that. Think of when God said, let there be light. Was there any light that existed before that? No, it just came into being. So God will also say to people, let there be life. And people are dead in their sins. And he brings life into it. God's call is effective. So, God planned to effectively call undeserving Gentiles and a remnant of undeserving Jews. With that, we can go into that first point. God designed to call many undeserving Gentiles. Look at verses 24 and 26, or 25 and 26 with me. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now, Paul, again, is not directly quoting Hosea. He's actually, it's, it almost feels like more of a paraphrase here. He, he moves some things around and then he puts in the, a different word uh, for say, to call. But the idea is still the same. Now, some of you could say, but hold on a second. How do we know he's talking to Gentiles here? Because nowhere in this does it say Gentiles. Well, if verse 24 is the beginning of a new paragraph, then we should expect he's going to talk about Jews and Gentiles, right? Right? Right. Okay. Right. And then in verse 27, he says, and of Isaiah, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Well, if, I, if, if that's Israel, then you would assume then what's coming before he's talking to the Gentiles, okay? All right. So, 
Paul is talking of Gentiles. But what's actually confusing with this is that this verse coming from Hosea is actually God's statement to the northern kingdom of Israel. What? If Paul is talking about Gentiles and trying to prove how God works among the Gentiles, why is he taking a quote about the northern kingdom of Israel and applying it to Gentiles? Do you see the conundrum here? Paul, you're misquoting scripture. Is he? There's, there's two answers to this, and I think you can actually merge these together. The first one is when we see God saying, I will call those who are not my people, my people, not beloved, beloved. I think what we can see there in this text is God always loves to pick the least likely. Always does. Think about Abraham. Think about Moses. Think about David. Think about Nineveh. Here are all these situations where no, 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 God wouldn't reach out to these people. Yet he does. And if God loves to do that, then why should it surprise us that he's reaching out to Gentiles? Because, by the way, in my study this past week, one of uh, the commentators I read, he said, most Jews expected a few Gentiles to be saved and many Jews. But the initial response to the gospel has been precisely the reverse. They're not expecting, at least the Jews were not expecting many Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. But God's always liked to choose the least likely. But again, we still have to wrestle with this fact that Paul is wanting to go back to the Old Testament scriptures as a proof for how God has always worked. So I don't think that that's the full answer there. I think the second part to this is recognizing that Israel was always intended to be a microcosm of how God will act in the world. So meaning a little picture of how God would act in the Gentile realm, across the globe. We get this even in Paul in Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. Paul says that the law was given to those under the law. Who are those under the law? Who are they? The Jews. The law was given to the Jews so that, you know what the next line is? So that every mouth may be stopped. And Paul says, we know this to be the case. Every mouth means the whole world. Wait a second. How's the whole world stopped by God giving the law to Jews? Because they knew that they were a picture of God's work in the world and what God was going to do in the world. Therefore, Paul can take a quote from Hosea referring to the northern kingdom and saying, just like he did it with them, he's intended to do that with the world. He loves to pick the least Likely. I love that. And maybe I love that a little bit more because of my uh, growing up years in school. I was never the popular one. And I mean, I might, I might have been like second or third tier, you know, but I definitely wasn't popular, okay? And when it came to sports, scraping the bottom of the barrel, you know? I was that kid. I didn't look forward to PE when they were choosing teams. You know, it's like, oh, great. It's one of those days. Except for whatever reason, I could play volleyball. I could hit a ball, you know, but anything else with a ball, just don't ask me to do, okay? Um, and so when they would choose teams, I'm standing there, please, please pick me, please, please, please just, Lord, don't let me be last. And I'm sure I was last on occasions, and then I'd even just be happy for second to last. But I, I, I bring that up 
Because sometimes people think when it comes to God, we can think that God tends to choose us on the basis of our ability. Or God loves us more on the basis of how good we are. So how disciplined are you in your Bible reading? Can you, can you articulate all of the systemization of theology in the scriptures? How well can you do that? How, how good is your articulation in prayer? Oh, well then, you are the top tier popular Christian. You're a little bit closer to God. You actually are sitting at his right hand because look at you. Sometimes we just buy into that mentality sometimes, don't we? We're not, we're not thinking we are, but we're thinking God is playing favorites on the basis of what we do. We can sometimes make deals with God. You know, if you've been ignoring God for a while, you start feeling guilty that you've ignored God, and then you get back into the word and you go, what am I? I'm just a big hypocrite. I might as well not even read. You know, have you ever done that before? That makes no sense. But that's how we behave towards God because we're viewing his love on the sense of us instead of his love as based in him. God loves to pick the unlikely. And I am an unlikely candidate. Now, some of you will rejoice in that. And Paul actually causes us elsewhere. When he talks to the Corinthian church, he, he calls them to rejoice in this too. He says, For, consider your calling. He's talking about their salvation. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were from noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. God chooses the last picked. Do you even get that in the text where it says God chooses the foolish things of the world? What are the foolish things in the context? Me, you, Christian, we're the foolish things of this world. Amen. Amen that he loves me and he loves you so much, believer. And it's not because of you. It's not because of what you did. It's not because of how amazing you are in your spirituality. It says there, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. So those of us who are believers, we can rejoice in this. Now, some people here in this room might, say, might be mad at that. And if you're angry with that, just reevaluate who you are. Say, well, I'm created in the image of God. And I'm special. And you know what? You are created in the image of God. But there's a huge problem that as created in the image of God, unlike every other creature, you have the greatest responsibility and you as a human being created in the image of God rebelled against God. How did I rebel against God? You don't value him supremely and he made everything for his glory. Therefore, in all that you do, say, think, you live for yourself or for other things, but not for his glory, which means as the king and the creator, you commit treason against him. Now, that means you deserve punishment. That's what Paul's getting at with the quotation of Hosea. Those who are called not my people and not beloved 
To not be God's people is to be rejected by God. To not be loved by God does not simply mean God tolerates us. It means, it means to experience his wrath that's just for the sins. How contrary this is to our culture, isn't it? It seems like in this world, people tend to think the preset of a human being is you are God's child and he loves you eternally. That's not true. We are born children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And we are under his punishment unless we have his mercy. Now you could say, okay, Pastor Timothy, if that's the state of human beings, and if human beings are that sinful, then where's our hope? If I'm only going to reject God with all of my decisions, where's my hope? God's mercy, right? That's my only hope is God and his mercy. Our only hope is God and his effective call. Hosea says that those who were not my people will be called my people. Listen, when God declares something to be the case, it is the case. When he says that's what this is, that's what it is. He brings it into being and here in this text, when he says, not my people, and they will be my people, God's talking about salvation. He prophesied this among the people of the northern kingdom, and therefore it, extended, it extends to all people around the globe. And thus throughout the world, there are people who were not his people, who have become his people. And then the text says that they will be called sons of the living God. God will make us his children. God doesn't only rescue us from punishment. He welcomes us into his home. Now, some of you here could say, what's the big deal about being adopted? I know some people who've been adopted and they're so grateful for it and other people um, who struggle with with that. I know other people or of people who had hard lives in their home with sinful parents. And so hearing God as a father, they'd rather not even think of God being a father. But it's important that we understand these truths and understand them biblically. What's the big deal about being adopted into God's family? Well, listen, it says, you are not my people, but now you're mine. And then he says, and this is, I think, the important or the really helpful term. You were not loved, now you are beloved. It's not just being in God's family and being tolerated, it's being beloved. Now, some of you go, beloved, what is that? Like, we, I don't use that word very often. Okay. This past week, I had a conversation with one of my daughters, my youngest, Carice, and she declared to us, that she needs new shoes. Now, you have to know something about Carice. She loves shoes. She has loved them for almost as long as we've known her, as long as she could speak. For her two-year two birthday, when my wife took her to Meyer to say, just give it, what, what do you want for your birthday? She did not go to the toys, she went to the shoes. 
and she pointed at all the shoes that she wanted. For her birthday, she got 10 pairs of shoes and she was in ecstasy. Okay, so this past week, she declares she needs shoes. You have to take it in context, right? Okay, do you really need new shoes? But I did concede many of her shoes, they're getting tight on her and the hand-me-downs from Elise are too big for her. So I said, okay, this week, I will take you to Old Navy and we will get you some shoes. So we go into Old Navy, we're looking, I said, you can get two pairs of shoes and she's just, you know, there's just the, the choices, you know. And finally narrowed it down to two, gets them, we come home, and uh, she shows them off. Look, mom, look at my shoes. And, and see, does everybody see my shoes? And then finally we've seen it. We're like, yay, good for you. And she's sitting on the floor and she has her shoes with her. And, and she's got this pair in her hands. And then she holds them close to her. And she goes, oh, my beloved. <laughs> and, and one of my kids even said, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> now, she at least in one sense understood the context of that word, beloved. To, to have a beloved means to love dearly, to love intensely, and even biblically to love tenderly. To be God's, to be beloved is for God to love you intensely, immensely, and tenderly. You who was a vessel of wrath, is now a vessel of mercy who is tenderly loved intensely for all eternity by the immortal creator of all. You are beloved. You are beloved of God. This is what God delights in doing. So listen, if you have trusted in Jesus, praise God for his work of mercy in your life. Praise God for bringing you into his family and giving you life and love. Rejoice. God made a promise to save people and call them his own. God made a promise to have a beloved and we can trust him. God is designed to save many undeserving Gentiles. And by the way, many of us in this room are proof of that. Now we can go into the next point. God designed to save a remnant of undeserving Jews. Look at verses 27 and 29. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Are all Jews guaranteed salvation? No. It was never the intent in the promise that God made. They thought that being born physically into Judaism, guaranteed they were good with God. But what Paul is saying here is that physical descent from Abraham not only does not guarantee inclusion in the true people of God, it is not even necessary. But some can think, well, if physical descent doesn't matter, then I guess God has rejected Israel. And that's the wrong conclusion to make. God does work within Israel, but it's 
in a different understanding than how they understood his promises. I mean, even think about Jesus's entrance into the city of Jerusalem. Oh, save, oh, save. But they were not expecting, even the disciples are not expecting he's going to die on a cross. They're not expecting that he is going to take the punishment for their sins on a cross. They're expecting, now when's the kingdom going to come? Now when are you going to set it up and how are we going to rule? Let's talk about plans here. You know, that's how they're thinking. And so we can think of God's promises. Okay, it's all or nothing, right, in our minds. But it's not that God has rejected national Israel completely. It's just that it's in a different way than what they're thinking. God has decided always to save a remnant, which could be a large number, but it seems as though with that term remnant, it's not the majority of Israel. And again at that, some people can say, no fair, no fair, and why? Why? By the way, if you're thinking no fair and why, just keep reading Romans 9 and praying and asking God to help your heart to rejoice in his mercy Maybe listen to the messages again, but I'm not going to get into that um, at this point. But it is a good thing to have a godly wrestle with the Lord over these. Let's just remember that no one deserves mercy. So the fact that God would even save one, one person, any person, is phenomenal grace. If we really understood the holiness of God. So, God has decided, though, not just to save one. He's decided to save a remnant. And he's decided to save this remnant in mercy to them. It is just. God has made it in a just way. And I'm trying to figure out just real quick with me. If you are a person who says no fair to God, let's just again remember what Jesus did. When you really think about the cross of Jesus Christ taking the punishment for sinners, couldn't, couldn't he have said no fair? Right? And he didn't. He took the weight of wrath for myriads of sinners, an eternity's, if I can word it this way, an eternity's worth of wrath for myriads of sinners on himself on the cross. If he did that for sinners, that's evidence that we can trust him to be just and good and right. So let's not say no fair. Let's instead rejoice in the sovereign grace of the Lord. Let's admit no one deserves mercy, even Israel. And Paul says that even though the sons of Israel number the sands of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. That means that not all Israel will be reconciled with God. And then in verse 28, we have this intriguing statement that the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. The word for means that it's building off of what he's previously said. And then what he's declaring here in this text is that God is going to bring about judgment. His sentence is referring to judgment. God is going to bring judgment fully and without delay. Now, some of us might look at that and we think of a time period. Without delay, sounds like a time period, right? But in the Greek, this idea can mean that it is going to come suddenly. It will happen, and when it happens, it will happen completely. God is going to judge the world. God is going to judge Israel. It will happen at some point in time. 
Now, that can be a cause of sobriety in our hearts and even some fear, but actually how Paul is writing is he's, he's also trying to get us to a point of anticipation. Because as we've learned, in every example that Paul gives up to this point, God's judgment is always a platform for mercy. Whenever God judges in this creation, Look out for mercy. Where's it coming? God is going to judge fully and completely. But that final judgment isn't going to come until the number of the remnant is complete. This is interesting. Did you know one of the reasons why Jesus hasn't come back yet is because the full number of the remnant isn't complete? full number of the remnant of Jews isn't complete. Why? Why didn't God just give up on them? Because he made promises. And he has decided to extend mercy to even the Jewish people so that truly every tribe, nation, and tongue would be a part of his people for all eternity future. So we see here in this text, God has decided to save many Gentiles. God has decided to save a remnant of the Jews. And we could end the sermon at this, except for the fact that Paul goes on with this paragraph in verse 29 and says, And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The quotation comes from Isaiah 1, 9. And Paul quotes exactly from the Greek translation of the Old Testament here. This word for offspring comes in again. Paul's already used that earlier on in this chapter to show that it's not about physical descent primarily. It's about a spiritual descent. And I think even here in this text, what we see about God having a remnant is that because God has designed a remnant of spiritual Israel within physical Israel, that God is actually showing what we call common grace to national Israel. Because he's going to save a spiritual Israel out of national Israel. Does that, do you get what I'm saying? Hopefully. If you don't, we'll talk later. God is showing mercy. He's guaranteeing that a nation of Israel will last until the end. Because he is going to save people out of that nation for his glory. God's judgment in creation is always a platform for mercy. Now, I just want us to think about this briefly. When we realize God's judgment is a platform for mercy, this should shape how we think about life in general in this fallen world. Sometimes I can talk to Christians about the horrors that happen in this world. And we ought to lament over those things. We ought to weep. We ought to pray for God's Greatness, his judgment, even in the midst of those things. But sometimes people talk like this. Oh no, God's going to judge us. Oh no, I can't do it. It's getting so bad, so bad. I'm just going to stick my head in the sand. That's not the response. Listen, we as Christians here in the United States of America may undergo persecution. Do I want it? No. But should I live in fear? No. Because if it gets to that point, that's just a reality, a realization to me. God's judgment is a platform for mercy. 
that there is going to be mercy expressed in the midst of this. There's going to be his grace. People will be drawn to him. God is still on the throne. So we can trust him in the midst of the painful, in the midst of the hard, in the midst of the judgments. Because mercy, even as James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. So as we come to even a close of this sermon, you hear Paul saying that we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah, which shows that the Israelites as well are sinners. Sinners like Sodom. They don't deserve to remain, but God is choosing to because of the remnant. And we're all sinners, whether Jew or Gentile. And I hope that that if you're here today and you have not rested in the mercy of Jesus, that you would fall before him today. And that you, you would cry out to him for mercy and know a love that is beyond comprehension. Know a love that, that loves you eternally. That you would turn to Christ for forgiveness and grace to grow. And for those of us who believe, as we ponder Paul's words here again, we should be humbled and amazed at our God. Anybody here deserve his mercy? No. So we should be humbled and amazed. And we should also trust him. He keeps his promises. Everything he set out to do, he accomplishes. And we should rejoice in the mercy and grace that can save the worst sinners, the least likelies. We're the least likelies. And his mercy extends. If God had not saved us, we would have rejected him forever, but God planned to save vessels of mercy from Jews and Gentiles. So grow in your gratitude. Grow in your gratitude to the Savior who marched into Jerusalem and said, I'm going to give you greater than what you could ask for. Truly, I will save you. Let's pray. And Father, we rejoice in your kindness, in your power, in your majesty. And we pray, Lord, that even as we sing these couple of songs, that our hearts would rejoice, that our hearts would be humbled and amazed by a God who has done everything to set us free. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Spirit. So convince us, Spirit, of God's righteousness, of sin, of judgment, of mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen.